One of the things I say to the people in setting down the ground rules is I want you to listen for the purposes of understanding, mm. not for the purposes of responding. Because uh, quite often as humans, and almost all the time as lawyers, because our training teaches us to do this, mm. we listen to other people for the purposes of formulating our response in our head. So that the moment they stop speaking, we can come out with our response. Hi, this is Julie Hyde. Thanks for joining me on Making Account, a podcast dedicated to inspiring leaders and business owners to be even better leaders, to create a great culture, empower their people and be more productive. So let's get into it. I'm joined today by John Farron. John is a workplace and employment lawyer and the co-founder of Farron McRae Workplace Lawyers and Consultants. Now, the employee relations areas can be quite a contentious one, but John's approach is very pragmatic and very well-rounded. He shares some awesome tips in this podcast, not only on employee and employment law matters, but pushing against the culture of busy and how a professional trumpet player transitioned into the law industry. So a bit about John. John has extensive experience in all aspects of workplace and employment law. He has represented employers and employees before workplace and industrial administrative and statutory tribunals and courts at both state and federal levels and is a skilled workplace investigator for complex workplace relations matters. With a special interest in dispute resolutions, John is also an experienced workplace mediator. His mediation approach assists the parties to identify the root cause of their conflict and agree on how to positively move their working relationship forward. So we chat about why Farron McRae advises and acts for both employees and employers rather than just one or the other and how this often enables better outcomes, tips for leaders who might feel out of their depth when addressing people issues, tips for avoiding employee disputes and claims, and how John is pushing against the culture of busy. Now, this is an awesome chat and something that leaders and business owners will get really superb value from. So enjoy my chat with John. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hello, Julie. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'm really keen to um, get stuck into this and talk about all things, you know, workplace and workplace law. So, shall we just jump in? Certainly. Awesome. All right. So, I'd love you to share with our listeners a bit about your background because it's incredibly interesting and how you've got to where you are today. Uh, well, Julie, my background to the law has um, been a bit of a uh, windy and twisted one, I suppose. I, I, I'm not, as a lot of lawyers are, um, have left school and straight into university and straight into practice. Um, originally, in fact, I was um, a professional musician. Um, when I left uh, school, I went to the Conservatorium of Music here in Queensland and studied there for a, a couple of years. I was a, a trumpet player. Um, studied classical trumpet at the conservatorium, but was mostly, in terms of earning a living, uh, mostly in um, jazz and commercial music. Um, this is back in the days, going back a few years now, unfortunately, um, when uh, live musicians were still used uh, in things like uh, television advertising and uh, record albums and things like that. So there was a, a bit more work around then for musicians. Um, but having done that for a few years, um, I had got married and was starting to have a young family and it was looking increasingly difficult in the long run to make a decent living out of being Mm. a musician, Mm. as many find. So um, 
uh, being a, uh, as I was, a dropout from the Conservatorium of Music, um, that of course doesn't prepare you for many uh, paying jobs. So um, I went, went into sales work, um, worked in real estate for a period of time and then, and then retail sales. Uh, and I did that probably for about a few years as well before I realised, wow, I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, so then I did go back to university as about a 24-year-old, I think, as a, so a mature student or a more mature student. Um, and I did a Bachelor of Commerce at Griffith University here in, in Queensland. And I did double majors uh, in the end um, uh, in uh, human resource management and industrial relations. When I first started, I thought I was going to be an accountant because I'd done accounting at school. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Until I did the introduction to accounting course in first year, I thought, man, I can't do that. I had it for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, no, no offence to any accountants listening. No. Um, and so I got a bit of student counselling and they said, well, you'd be really good in HR and I up. So I did that. And uh, I did that part-time while working um, for four of those years um, because I had a young family by then. I actually took a blue-collar job at Australia Post. I worked in the main mail processing centre here in uh, Brisbane. Um, and while that was a difficult job, I mean, after you've been there a few months, as pretty much you've done everything there is going to be to do there. So it's pretty boring. But um, in terms of my future career in IR, um, it did give me a great experience of working in a blue collar environment uh, in 24 hour, seven day a week shift work um, and a highly unionized workplace as well. Mm. Uh, so it gave me an insight that a lot of professional advisors um, in employment law um, don't have, uh, particularly if they've gone straight from school to university to practice. They've never uh, potentially held a job of that kind. Um, so uh, once I graduated, I actually got a mature age uh, graduate position uh, with the Queensland Treasury Department uh, here in Brisbane, uh, and I quickly fell into the employee relations unit there, and I also very quickly uh, started my law degree. Uh, so I did a, a Juris Doctor um, at the University of Queensland here, and that took me about another six years of full-time work and part-time study. And then um, when I graduated, I actually transferred... Uh, from the employee relations unit uh, to the in-house counsel area at Queensland Treasury Department and spent three years working as in-house counsel there, mostly um, in addition to employment law matters and discrimination cases and things like that, uh, working on major government infrastructure projects as a commercial lawyer. Um, and then after that time, I decided that um, I would go out on my own. So that's when I started my consulting um, business. And that was specialising in workplace investigations and workplace mediation work, um, uh, primarily for government clients, but also for some private clients. Uh, and that really took off straight away. Um, my original plan was actually go to go to the bar to practice as a barrister. Mm. Um, but to do that, you have to uh, apply for and pass the bar exams. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, to de-risk it for my family, I will um, start this consulting business and in six or 12 months, I'll do the bar course and go to the bar. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the consulting business kind of took off. And I thought, well, you know, this is going pretty well. Maybe I'll put off the plan of going to the bar. Um, but after about four or five years of that, I did proceed with my original plan. And about seven years ago, I was admitted to the private bar um, here in Queensland. And I practiced until July of last year as a barrister. Um, but at the same time, in parallel, I continued to do the consulting work. So mm. principally as a consultant investigator uh, for complex workplace investigations and as a mediator as well. 
And then in July of last year, for a period of time, uh, my wife, Alison, had been working in the consulting business as a specialist workplace investigator. And we had been talking about what to do with effectively was two businesses. I had my law practice and the um, uh, consulting business. And so we decided to effectively consolidate both by for, um, by forming uh, Farrah McRae Workplace Lawyers and Consultants. So I transferred from being uh, uh, a practicing barrister to practicing as a solicitor, uh, as the head of our own firm. And Alison is the uh, non-legal practitioner director of the firm uh, specialising in uh, the workplace investigations. So effectively, we are a law firm uh, specialising in workplace and employment law and also uh, are offering uh, consulting services by way of workplace investigations and mediation as well. Yeah. So that is my uh, long, twisted and somewhat <laughs> tortuous uh, road to where I am today. Absolutely. I love it when, when hearing people's stories. Um, and it's not often that I've heard of anyone who has been a professional trumpet player and then has really taken the bulls by the horn and, and jumped into the law industry. So, Yeah, and, and certainly, um, look, the, the vast majority of people I knew back in the day who are playing, if they've stayed in the industry, they, they very most often end up music teachers, mm. either private music teachers or for a private school or the education yeah. department. So they can actually um, keep both going. Um, yeah. But when I played, a question I often get is, why do you still play your trumpet? And unfortunately, no is... The general answer. Uh, every so often, I pull it out and do like a one-off gig somewhere. Um, yeah. The last time was about three years ago. Um, but when I stopped playing professionally, I basically stopped playing. Yeah, right. um, so it actually takes a lot of effort, as I imagine your listeners can imagine, to be uh, playing at a, a good level. It yeah. takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, and with everything else I've got going on in my life um, over the last number of years, um, I, I just don't have the time. Uh, to put into it. So these days I just enjoy listening to other really great players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely understand that. And I can imagine that the expectation that you have for yourself is incredibly high. Whereas I'm sure if I heard you play, I'd think you were amazing. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I remember going to a, like a, um, a community band uh, probably 15, 20 years ago now um, just to have a go and, and see whether I could still play in that. And um, uh, not to be offensive, but it was terrible. Mm. Um, and I just remember driving home thinking, yeah, let's just leave it. <laughs> let's just leave <laughs> it. On, on good memories. Yeah, <laughs> and, sometimes that's And, and move on. Just keep moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So um, I really like what you said before, and you, did ha you do have a lot of experience in different um, careers, if you like, while you were studying, which has given you a really good understanding of, you know, being an employee in various workplaces, like you mentioned the Oz Post, and that was highly unionised and um, a blue-collar workforce. So because if you, I'm keen for you to tell us a, a bit about Farron McRae because you take a very different approach in that you advise and act for both the employee and the um, employer rather than one or the other, like many other firms do. So can you share with our listeners why you do that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jolly. Um, yeah, it is true that uh, the vast majority of law firms either act for employers uh, or act for employees um, and also the unions. Um, and uh, in the industry, um, it, it's often 
people are viewed with suspicion. Um, you know, if you're an employer uh, lawyer, let's say, um, and you were interested, in fact, moving to a firm that acts for employee, uh, employees and unions, uh, you can be viewed with some sort of suspicion and vice versa. And I've never un actually understood this attitude at all in the time, whole time I've worked in industrial relations, but it's reasonably prevalent. Um, I believe that having acted for both employers and employees and continuing to do so, not only personally makes the work more interesting for me, um, but also gives the, the ability to have um, a unique perspective on each of the problems that arise, whether my client is an employer or an employee, or in fact, from time to time, a union. Um, I think it gives a better, a better um, strategic view of the problem solving that needs to be done. And other than that, it, it provides some degree of empathy uh, mm. for the other side's position as well. And uh, contrary to some people's views, I don't see that as a weakness. Uh, being able to empathise um, with your opponent when you're in, say, litigation, um, I believe is a strength and it allows you to understand uh, you know, where they're coming from, particularly if um, matters are becoming particularly fractious and difficult and mm. you're trying to work out, well, why are they being so apparently difficult mm. um, rather than just taking an increasingly combative approach, uh, trying to, uh, you know, for the want of a better expression, get into the head of your opponent to be able to understand where they and their client are coming from. I think I can only assist your own client. Mm. Um, and like I said, apart from that, I just find it more interesting. Um, to be able to, uh, from time to time, act on both sides of the sort of equation. Yeah. So I like what you said about that empathy space because, you know, we don't necessarily have to agree with what's happening on the other side or agree with their thinking, but at least trying to empathise with them to try and get to a better outcome. Yeah, absolutely, Gillian. Uh, when we're mediating, there's a, a step in the mediation process that I utilise where... Um, uh, well, it's usually one of the first steps when people are um, doing their opening statements about, you know, what's brought them to the mediation and what they're trying to, hoping to achieve. Um, and one of the things I say to the people in setting down the ground rules is I want you to listen for the purposes of understanding, mm. not for the purposes of responding. Because uh, quite often as humans and almost all the time as lawyers, because our training teaches us to do this, mm. we listen to other people for the purposes of formulating our response in our head so that the moment they stop speaking, we can come out with our response. And while um, that might be uh, useful when you're, say, a litigation lawyer in court and you're having to formulate responses very quickly um, to defeat an opponent in litigation, uh, in other circumstances in life where you're trying to actually come to terms with the person you're in conflict with and to understand what's happening, even if you don't agree with them, uh, you have to understand what their perspective is before anything can, mm. um, uh, you can hope to achieve anything. So, no, you're right about that, Julie, and it's, and it's really important, uh, though, also in advising clients in terms of litigious matters because... Um, a, a critical difference between good and great lawyers is not how much they know about the law. Any good, competent lawyer knows about the law. Mm. Um, but one of the things that makes great lawyers is to be able to understand your opponent's case, uh, to be able to anticipate 
um, uh, what they're likely to do and why they're likely to do that. And then, of course, be able to formulate uh, what you're going to do either in preparation for that or in response to that. And that's mm. what makes a great lawyer, particularly a great litigation lawyer. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great distinction. And I can imagine that if people do embrace that, that it does save them a lot of time, which equates to money as well in these situations. Look, absolutely. And when it comes to trying to work out um, legal disputes, I mean, I don't think I know a litigation lawyer, including myself, that would usually litigate their own self-interests. Yeah, uh, because we know that litigation is expensive, it's slow, uh, it's uncertain, and it's stressful. Mm. Uh, so when I'm dealing with my own self-interest, wherever possible, um, I'll seek to negotiate outcomes. Mm. Um, even if I don't get everything I want, it's still generally a better outcome for everyone. As long as everyone can live with the agreed outcome, yeah. then that ought to be the goal. Now, even yeah. in my own personal circumstances, from time to time, I've had to engage in litigation. Yeah. But it's usually as a last resort, not a first resort. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a great tip from the expert there. <laughs> <laughs> not too many litigation lawyers will admit that, I don't yeah. think. Um, no. Because obviously uh, litigating something to the end of a trial is a lot more lucrative than it is, um, you know, negotiating a, 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 an agreement that the parties can live with at an early stage. Mm. Um, but in fact, we are duty bound by our professional ethical duties uh, to ensure that our clients understand all of their options, including alternative dispute resolution options. Yeah. Um, because uh, that is uh, in itself in the public interest and in the interest of the advancement of justice. So that is a, a very clear ethical obligation placed upon all legal practitioners. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm touching, uh, touching on that in terms of, of course, it would be very beneficial for people to be to take a proactive approach around problems before they get to a critical you know issue so people management is one of the most complex tasks that a leader will face into and often you know they're simply not good at it and or they don't have a lot of experience with it when things become a little fractured within their team. So they might have an issue with someone or they might have an issue between people. It might be about performance. It might be about relationship. And often they can be fearful of what confronting that means. So they'll avoid <laughs> the whole problem. Um, and often, of course, that, that can lead to it becoming a massive issue that then has to be dealt with and it can often be quite out of control. So... Um, and become very, very time-consuming. So can you share some tips with our listeners on what to do if they're feeling like they just don't know what to do or how to confront situations so they can get ahead of it rather than dealing with something very reactively that's become probably out of control? Yeah, sure, Julia. And that's a great question. I think there's actually kind of two parts to the question mm. um, that you pose. Um, firstly, if somebody doesn't know what to do in a particular circumstance, um, I always advise to seek advice. Um, speak to someone who does know what to do. Mm. So uh, if you're in an organisation that is big enough that it has internal advisors, internal HR or employee relations advisors, certainly go and have us talk to those people. Um, if that's not available, uh, um, then obviously the solution is to seek advice from external advisors. So in this um, type of area, 
that'll either be a HR or IR consultants or an experienced uh, employment lawyer such as myself. Mm. Um, and my advice is too is to, to seek advice sooner rather than later because um, the thing is with this type of thing, I suppose it's like any profession um, or trade, uh, you know, once you've been doing something like this for 10 or 20 years, um, there's not too many things that arise in workplaces that I, I now haven't seen before. Mm. Um, every so often, somebody will come up with a new, <laughs> a new thing, a behaviour <laughs> or a tactic, um, which does uh, surprise, um, but it's not very often. So generally when a client um, who might be facing an issue for the very first time in their business or in their career as a manager um, uh, feel panicked because they just don't know what to do, uh, I might have seen this multiple times before and know exactly what the person's options are. So, mm-hmm. uh, And often that doesn't need to be a costly exercise in seeking that advice. It can be a relatively quick consultation to just say, okay, well, this is what you're facing. Here are your options. Either you can go off and do it on your own um, or you can retain us and we'll continue to advise uh, mm-hmm. and act for you as the matter proceeds. Um, so that's the first thing. The second part of your question was about what if they're fearful of confronting the situation? Mm-hmm. And you're quite right. Um, probably the number one response to uh, difficult workplace situations that most people fall into, and myself included, is avoidance. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, conflict, uh, like I personally uh, would avoid conflict. Um, but unfortunately, in working in professional life, uh, that just doesn't work. Um, and typically, avoidance generally doesn't make things better. You might get a very odd case with if you just ignore something, either the person goes away or the problem goes away. But, you know, 99 times out of 100, the problem just gets worse yeah. uh, if nothing is done about it. Um, the, the next um, step, I think, is once you've decided, okay, I, I do need to do something about this, um, I've sought some advice, the advice is I need to talk to the person that seems to be the source of the issue, uh, my advice is to, to go into these discussions with an open mind, not prejudging what you think the problem is or what the solution is, but to go in um, with that open mind and also, as we just talked about before, when you're talking to the person about what the issues are, is listen to understand, not to mm-hmm. respond. Because if you're going into a, with a closed mind, you'll just be going through the motions, the person you know, will we'll say what they say and you'll just come out with your uh, ready response, which may or may not um, be an appropriate response to the situation. And if it is an appropriate response, it'll be a matter of dumb luck, not good management. <laughs> so um, once you get into that discussion, I think it is, and, and a lot of what I'm talking about now are actually some of the steps we use uh, in workplace mediation. Once you are actually discussing through um, what uh, is of importance to the person, what they think the, might, the issues might be. The next step is, in fact, to isolate what the real issues are. Yeah. And once again, that's part of the importance of keeping an open mind as to what those actual issues are. And one of the most common things that employers get wrong in these discussions is they don't sufficiently um, differentiate between what are performance issues and what are actually conduct issues. So performance issues essentially being that the, perform- that the person is not meeting the objectives of their position uh, due to some cause. Now, that cause could be um, that they are not sufficiently competent, they're not sufficiently motivated, um, there's some lack of clarity about what the expectations of performance are, 
or there could be other things that are outside of their control. There could be medical conditions. There could be disabilities coming into play. Um, there could be uh, outside influences that are affecting their ability to perform. The uh, other side of the coin is when something is a conduct issue, and that is when the person is not meeting the standards of conduct set for the workplace, whether that's under the code of conduct or under the general common law notions of what is misconduct or serious misconduct. So um, to, to give an illustration, for example, if somebody is engaging in bullying behaviour, that is not a performance issue, that's a conduct issue. Mm. If somebody is not producing the number of um, uh, you know, widgets, for the want of a better expression, yep. per hour that they're meant to be producing, that's a performance issue, not a mm. conduct issue. Mm. And the, the, the importance of making the distinction is that um, each of those types of issues require different responses, mm. uh, not only as a matter of good management and common sense, but uh, under the law as well, they require certain differences in the way that you deal with them. Mm. So that, for example, if a, if a dismissal was to be the end result and that was challenged um, in the, uh, say, Fair Work Commission as an unfair dismissal and they're looking at the process of management, then there are certain different steps that need to be taken in regards to performance issues as compared to conduct issues, and that can be mm. quite tricky. Now, mm. sometimes the problem might be a combination of both, too, yeah. Um, yeah. In, in particularly in, in very complex and serious cases. Um, the other thing that's really common, too, is, is often um, workplace disputes and workplace problems arise out of simple lack of clarity, a lack yeah. of understanding about, well, what are the performance expectations? Yeah. What are the conduct expectations in a given situation? Mm. And sometimes it can be simply a matter of clarifying those things and problem solved. Mm. It, it is no more serious or uh, and it gets no more fractious than that. Yeah. Um, and then the final step, I suppose, is, is that once you've actually identified what those problems are, then there's a technique that I use in mediation, which is called externalization. And you try to identify the problem in a single word. Now, the problem might be a lack of trust, or the problem might be a lack of communication, or the problem might be lack of clarity. And then what you do is once you identify the problem as this external thing, that is, the problem isn't you personally, and the problem isn't me personally, the problem is this thing out here, mm. then you can both turn on the problem together and try to actually come up with solutions. What can you do more of, more of or less of that would assist that problem? What can I do more of or less of that would assist that problem? Mm. And so that's the type of constructive um, employment management that we encourage with our clients. Mm. Now, from time to time, unfortunately, um, uh, things are unworkable. Either a, per a person, despite being supported, uh, can't meet their performance expectations or despite uh, being warned, uh, engage in misconduct, which means that their employment is untenable. Mm. And in that case, then you're looking at taking disciplinary action. Uh, and uh, the government, of course, sector has quite a wide variety of disciplinary actions they can take. The private sector is much more narrow mm. um, and often are, are um, the only options are either to warn um, the employee or dismiss them and there's not yeah. much between the two mm. um, and in that case you really need to make sure that your processes are, um, are good and are fair so that if the matter does end up litigated uh, or disputed in some way then you're on on um, strong ground to defend yeah that. yeah 
Great tips, really pragmatic advice there. And I love how you said around isolating the issues, whether it's performance or conduct. Um, I think that's a fantastic tip and then therefore how to to deal with that. Um, so I suppose like to get ahead of this, so, you know, they're not having to deal with this and you um, talked about fair work and I know that they do really focus on the processes that a, um, you know, a business or an organisation has in place to handle the disputes and what's been followed and what hasn't. So is that the type of thing that you help, you can help businesses with is to really be proactive around this and to make sure that they've got really strong processes and frameworks in place to try and avoid this type of situation and to equip them to be able to handle it, you know, in a way that, well, I suppose they can in terms of their knowledge um, and then know when to refer it on to a you when it gets out of their out of their realm of expertise. Oh, for, for sure, Julie. Um, I, I think um, employers often worry about employment-related litigation. Uh, mm. They worry that if they dismiss a person, for example, they'll either be subject to an unfair dismissal application to the Fair Work Commission or to uh, general protections as the adverse action proceedings. Um, in the commission and then ultimately potentially the federal circuit court or federal court um, and or, or discrimination proceedings. They're the main three types of proceedings that tend to come out of uh, employment um, disputes. Um, and, and certainly it is um, important that employers uh, are concerned about that, um, but not in a way that stops them from doing what needs to be done to manage their business. Because, frankly, some employees can be toxic in a workplace and they do have to be removed. Um, they can be toxic in terms of um, the cultural effects they have, in terms of the negative effects on performance and productivity, um, and they can be the source of other litigation, particularly when they have adverse effects on their colleagues. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly something that has to be done uh, sometimes. Um, but as I said earlier on in the podcast, uh, you know, generally as a last resort, not a first resort. Mm. Um, and I think, yes, no, front-loading front the process is very uh, important in terms of um, avoiding litigation in the end mm. because a really well-run and fair discipline process, um, to my mind, no doubt, reduces the risks of litigation. If somebody understands why they are being dismissed, uh, they sense themselves that they have been treated fairly, even if they don't like the way it's turned out, then they are less likely to litigate uh, for a number of reasons. Either they don't feel as aggrieved as they could if they don't, if it was a circumstance where they don't understand why this is happening to them. Uh, and the other reason is because if they go to a lawyer or an industrial advocate and say, well, this is what's happened to me, if there are substantial reasons for dismissal and the process is fair, then hopefully the advice they will get from the person they consult is you really don't have a case and should not pursue this. Mm. So that's the reason, main reasons why it reduces the risks of the litigation. But of course, you can't stop people bringing uh, proceedings if they want to bring proceedings. And in the case of employment proceedings, it's fairly easy and cheap to do that. It's certainly a lot cheaper and a lot easier and commencing general civil proceedings in, say, a commercial dispute uh, in the courts. Mm. Um, so you can't stop them from doing it ultimately. 
But then if it does happen, then the employer can uh, rest assured that they are on good grounds to resist any such application, whether that be, um, and the vast majority of cases do end up uh, like this, uh, whether that be through a negotiated settlement, either directly through the parties or when it comes on for conciliation and mediation in the tribunals, um, or uh, whether it be by a disputed hearing. Um, so the employer would be on much more solid ground uh, to hopefully bring the proceedings to a quick end. Mm. Um, whether that is just standing their ground and not negotiating at all and the other party finally realises that it is not worth pursuing or whether it is um, attempting to negotiate um, a relatively cheap settlement on a commercial basis that finally ties off the matter. Yeah. That, that last option is often called in our industry paying go-away money. And I don't really like that expression myself. I have advised plenty of clients over the years that uh, I um, that have taken the view that they have done nothing wrong, that they have been more than fair to the employee, um, and they are not going to pay anything. And they stand their ground, and either it goes on to a contested hearing, or in many cases, the employee, in fact, um, does uh, end up discontinuing the proceedings because they know the employer is serious. Mm. Now, that is uh, as viable as a, uh, an option as the employer saying, well, okay, I'm going to spend X amount of money defending this and it's going to take me out of my business and it's going to have all these negative effects. I will invest a certain amount of money in a commercial settlement just to finish this. Yeah. Um, either or both are quite uh, rational and appropriate ways of dealing with employment-based um, litigation. Mm. But going, um, but the, uh, the other side of that coin is there's nothing worse than going into proceedings for an employer knowing that the substantial grounds for dismissing the person are weak um, and that the process that has been engaged in um, to dismiss the person is uh, likely to be found unfair. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine. Well, you can only influence so far, can't you, <laughs> in some cases? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And look, as a lawyer, yeah, sometimes clients come to us in the very early stages and we make sure that everything is done uh, really well and other clients come to us after the fact. Mm. And then it's a matter of making sure that the client is properly advised on their prospects, yep. whether those prospects are very good or very poor or somewhere in between, and that they understand going ahead what the risks are in um, taking the various approaches that are open to them. And that's yeah. our jobs as lawyers. Yeah, that's right. And the key I've taken out of that is to be proactive. So just get ahead, make sure your processes are, are good and strong. Yeah. So I'm conscious of your time because I could talk about this stuff for um, ever because I'm so interested in it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to change tack just a little bit. Um, so as you know, I'm on a mission to change the culture of busy that we have in our workplaces and in our lives. Um, so I'm keen to hear how you manage the multiple demands on your time and um, how you look after you. Sure. Um, and certainly uh, when you're in business for yourself, I love working for myself. The control and the flexibility um, of being self-employed, um, I, I couldn't imagine being employed again uh, mm. in the rest of my working life. Um, but uh, one of the problems with, with it is that you can end up being a victim of your own success. So the better you do, um, the more difficult it is to manage your working life. So look, the main few things that I keep in uh, the front of my mind uh, and probably number one is learning to say no. 
And that's particularly hard for self-employed people um, where you don't have somebody else ensuring that your pay is paid every fortnight. Mm. It can be very difficult to say no to work and opportunities. Um, but I've always thought to myself, well, look, I'm in the sort of business where um, if I do really well, um, I'll always usually have more work than I can possibly do. Um, if I don't say no to that work and I start making mistakes, all of a sudden I can have no work really fast. In fact, the best case scenario in, in our line of work is that we have no work um, all of a sudden. So it's really important for both professional management, um, meeting our ethical requirements in terms of work management, and also just as a matter of common sense, to be able to say no. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's very important to get a very clear um, delineation in mind as to what you will say yes to and what you won't say no to. That's yeah. something I'm getting better and better at over the years. Yeah. Um, I don't try to multitask. This idea of multitasking, I think, is a complete uh, nonsense. Um, I, I don't actually believe that human minds can do literally two things at once. What we tend to do is keep just flicking backwards and forwards between matters, having to completely refocus every time uh, you do so. And for at least me personally, anyway, that just doesn't work. So I try to focus on one thing at a time um, and uh, set that time aside to be able to get done what needs to get done before I mm. move on to the next issue. That can, of course, okay. obviously be difficult when you've got phone interruptions and other interruptions to work. Um, but I try to do that as much as possible anyway. For me, listening and prioritising are really critical. Um, I... Um, Unless I have a to-do list, I use a free program called Workflowly, which I really like because it's a very simple program that can run on any of your devices and it all synchronizes. But everything that comes across my desk um, that I need to do, either personally or professionally, goes onto that list. And then I don't have to worry about forgetting things. Yeah. So it goes onto the list and then it's prioritized. Is this yeah. something to do today? Is it something to do this week or just in the current period? or unprioritised, yeah. um, and I find that that really, really helps in keeping a sense of control over work as well. Um, look, apart from that, I think the last two things I'd probably say are compartmentalising. Um, I am told that I'm pretty good at compartmentalising, so keeping work in its work box and keeping family life in its family life box and so on and so forth. I think particularly when you work for yourself, it can be very easy for all that just to get all mushed up yeah. until it becomes a really dysfunctional mess. Mm. Um, so I think that's really important that um, the ability to compartmentalise parts of your life so that they don't infect each other, um, um, I think is part of that culture that you are, you are working against actively, which is this mm -hmm. culture of busy. I'm always busy, busy, busy. I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm doing 50 things at once, uh, which um, I don't know you, but I find that personally very stressful, not only to live, but I even find it stressful hear, hearing people talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, And the only other thing that I'd probably mention is self-care. I really like that saying that you can't serve from an empty vessel. Mm. So making sure you look after yourself is really the first step to being able to look after other people. So for me, that's as much as possible eating well, uh, watching things like alcohol consumption. Um, our industry in particular has a significant problem with um, alcoholism and uh, drug use, both illicit drugs and prescription drugs. 
uh, as does most stressful industries. Mm. Um, and so it's something to be uh, mindful of at least. Yeah. Um, exercising regularly, making sure I'm getting enough sleep. Um, I do meditate at least once a day, um, sometimes more than once a day. And I also actually personally really like the um, the float tanks. I don't know if you've ever done that, but this, uh, the uh, sensory deprivation tanks, um, I do that at least once a month and preferably twice a month if I can, can get to it. Um, and I find that's very, very good in terms of stress uh, management. And the last thing in terms of self-care is just laughing often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think a life becomes pretty miserable if it's all serious and no laughs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love how clear you are on all of that. That's fantastic. And I have not done the flotation tank. One of my friends has done it and I'm, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to do that yet. But clearly all, all of um, what you're doing leads to your very calm demeanour, which you do have. You're very calm when I speak. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to at least keep that uh, front up for people yeah. <laughs> as best I can. You do indeed. It's like the dark, you know, it's, you know, it's the dark, you know, it's all calm on the surface yeah. and thrashing around underneath. So. <laughs> I always liken that to like a swan, a duck on the water and you look like very graceful as you're going across the water and you're pedaling really fast underneath. <laughs> Sometimes oh. it is like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I'm going to jump to our the last question, which is very much linked into the title of the podcast, which is about making it count. And I'd love to know how you feel that you're making it count and making a difference in your world. Sure. Um, look, I'd like to be remembered when I leave this earth as someone who gave more than they took. Um, and I suppose at this point in my career, in terms of how I give effect to that goal uh, in my professional life is by trying to share my knowledge and experience as widely as I can. Um, I think um, by trying to help others be a bit better, um, I think it, it lifts up an entire profession and an entire industry. And uh, there are many wonderful professionals, certainly in my industries, that do do that. And I think what it's also doing is giving effect to an attitude um, I've always had, probably got it from my parents, which is um, that um, mentality of abundance. So you know how some people come from a mentality of scarcity? Mm. They think that everything you get must have cost me something. And I particularly don't like that in terms of business competition and professional competitiveness. Um, I don't think that is good for the individuals and I don't think it's good for the clients and I don't think it's good for the professional industry as well. So, for example, I mean, you, you might um, know that I'm fairly active on LinkedIn and I regularly post on topics that I think might be of interest um, in terms of the types of areas I practice in yeah. and uh, sometimes people agree with the views that I post and sometimes they don't and that's good too. As long as everyone stays polite because my real pet hate is rudeness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as long as people stay polite in their um, debates and, and uh, different points of view, I think that's really useful as well. Mm. And also now I've, I've, in the last 10 years, I've started serving on boards as well. Um, and I, I enjoy um, giving into organisations from that strategic level as well mm. um, because I think it is, once again, a way of bringing your experience and your knowledge and sharing it with people and organisations in a way that, in fact, we all get better uh, through the process. 
So, um, yeah, that's uh, the main way, at least professionally, that I'm hoping to um, make a difference as we go along through this life. Fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing, John. And you've been incredibly generous on this podcast and shared so many pragmatic tips that I know people are going to get so much value from. I've taken so many notes myself. (laughs) So you've been wonderful. I love how you explain it and just really simple terms so that you know people can understand what you're saying so you can, you've definitely given a great insight into how you work and the value that Farrah McRae add to any person or company that they work with uh, I will share the links in terms of how people can get in contact with you and Farrah McRae on the on the show notes and thank you um, very much yeah and thank you so much for your time it was an absolute pre- pleasure Julia Have, thanks for having me on thanks for listening And I hope that you have gained some great ideas and feel inspired to get out there and make what you do count for your leadership, your business, and your life. Please do leave a review for this podcast and please share it with your network. Send any feedback or suggestions for future guests by emailing me, julie at juliehyde.com.au. For now, let's get out there and make it count.